Thank you very much. If you have your uh, Bible handy, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 18. Um, and uh, we got some handouts that are being handed out. And that will give you a guide. It'll, any references I use or whatever will be there. So that'll take some pressure off. Well, uh, let me say thank you to all of the folks involved in the service this morning. Uh, you all have helped us well. Um, Pastor Scott, thank you for the, the prayer of confession. Very, very helpful. Um, and uh, and then uh, Brother Mark, thanks for the songs. Uh, you went all out. Uh, it's a treat for me to get the list that we're going to be singing from uh, Mark because I know how much thinking has gone into it. But this week, I mean, you just Martin Luther, Charles Wesley, all in the same week. Come on. I mean, and it hit me. You grab something from the 15th century and the 18th century and the 21st century right at it. So we're like 300 years. We skipped every time. So that's. Wow. Incredible. Well, thank you. Uh, those are amazing songs and uh, they it's just neat to sing songs that, you know, have been tested for hundreds of years by the church. I mean, think about it. if we're still singing that song by Luther that was penned over 600 years ago, or right at 500 years ago. We're still singing that song. Probably we're singing. Right. Um, if we're still singing a song by Charles Wesley. Close to 300 years ago, probably worth singing. Um, so I just wonder how many of the songs that we're singing today will also be sung 300 years from now. Only the Lord knows. Well, excited to be here. I don't usually do this, uh, and I couldn't pick a worse person to do this to because she will hate me. But um, I, uh, we are blessed to have a special guest with us, Miss Smith. I always knew her as Raymond's mom growing up. This is my best friend growing up. His name's Raymond. Uh, and we went to school together, all hanging, hung out all the way through school. I spent a ton of time at their house. I haven't seen her in years, and she graced us with her presence this morning. Um, I, I tell you, you only realize later so many things in life, and so many of them, you are going to laugh and tell me, yeah, we'll just wait. It keeps like this. But when you're a parent, you begin to realize things. Like the light just kind of goes on. And I never realized the gift of getting to go to another house where they loved and followed Jesus, that that was just norm for them. Um, I, and Raymond and I ended up in the fourth grade together um, and, and became friends. And by the grace of God, his family followed Jesus. They didn't just say it. They followed Jesus. In fact, you spent a lot of time around Baptist churches as you were on staff at First Baptist Church in Winston, right? For many, many years. Thank you. Um, it was such a help to have a home away from home that followed Jesus uh, in the same way. So thank you. It's good to have you with us. All right. Well, we have before us <laughs> a lot uh, this morning. Um, we have before us Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through uh, 43. Let me read these uh, for us. Verse 31, and taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man, the prophets will be accomplished by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, 
they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by inquired what this meant, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, why do you or what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well or your faith has saved you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you for the mercy you have shown us. Father, we never deserve to have any more of your attention than the attention of judgment. That's what we deserve. And you sent your only son. And he came and he suffered and he rose again. And in the kindness beyond all kindness, he has stopped for us. God, I pray that you would be so kind as to open our blind eyes to see Jesus this morning. Father, I pray we will look upon him, him who was pierced, him who was crushed, and find life. Father, we need Jesus. And Jesus is all we need. Father, I pray for help as the word is preached, but I pray for help for those who are listening. Father, open our hearts and eyes. Do that by your spirit. Will he do the work of growing his people and his church? In your name we pray. Amen. So this week, Pastor Scott um, shared with the rest of us, of us elders a portion of a book he's reading on Charles Spurgeon. And in so doing, he offered me the introduction to my sermon. Um, so Pastor Scott is the gift that just keeps on giving. It's like the Jelly of the Month Club or something. Anyway, um, so some of, you, some of you may not be familiar with Spurgeon unless you've been in Baptist circles. There's, you might not be. He was a uh, Spurgeon was a preacher in London um, in uh, the 1800s, mid 1800s, exceptionally talented preacher. Um, he's often called the prince of preachers. Uh, while talented, he was exceptionally faithful to preaching the gospel. Uh, he became a preacher at the young age of 19 uh, and his sermons became so famous 
that they were published every week. And I mean, they, they went around the world. So Pastor Scott was sharing with us uh, that he's, he's reading uh, a, a newer biography on uh, Spurgeon. And, uh, and in it, it discussed how Spurgeon came, uh, the process of him coming to know Jesus. Uh, so Spurgeon's father or grandfather was a pastor and his, grand, his father was a bivocational preacher as well. And yet, given all that, he didn't actually come to faith until he was uh, 15. And it's in those early years of adolescence that Spurgeon reflected upon hearing preaching that he found interesting, but did not help him find salvation. Here's a quote that Pastor Scott, Scott shared with us. One man preached divine sovereignty, but what was that sublime truth to a poor sinner who wished to know what he must do to be saved? There was another admirable man who always preached about the law. But what was the use of plowing up ground that needed to be sown? Another was a very practical preacher, but it was very much like a commanding officer teaching all the maneuvers to set to a set of men without any feet. What I wanted to know was how can I get my sins forgiven? And they never told me that. Spurgeon was looking for the answer to the question, how? How can I get my sins forgiven? It's such an important question, and yet it's such a rare question asked today. Spurgeon later acknowledges it's by the grace of God that he even asked the question. Friend, maybe you're here and the question, this question is not one that really concerns you. That is, how to get your sins forgiven. I mean, after all, don't we all believe in a God who forgives? So really, who cares how or why he forgives so long as he just forgives? Well, what Spurgeon realized by the mercy of God is that God does forgive some, but he does not forgive all. Well, now, wait a second. If that's true, then the issue of how or why now becomes vitally important. I want us to consider the last few passages that we've looked at together in Luke. And, and I, I hope you see that I believe the Holy Spirit is leading us to these questions as you walk through how it's ordered Luke, writing by the Spirit of God, orders this in such an interesting way. So in chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, we consider the parable Jesus just told us, comparing a Pharisee, a religious leader, who's approaching God with just full confidence. That's the Pharisee. And pride versus a tax collector who stood off in the distance, who barely lifted his head, he was so ashamed of his misdeeds. We are told that the tax collector, he left justified. He left forgiven, but not the Pharisee. The Pharisee is out, but the tax collector is in? This is not what we would have imagined, especially when you consider the fact that Jesus himself is on record in Matthew 5 saying this. 
unless your righteousness exceeds, that is, it's better than the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of God. Well, if our righteousness has to be more than the Pharisee, and the Pharisee is out, then how? Here's the key. How in the world is a fraudulent, pesky tax collector in? It begs the question. But look at the very next passage in Luke 18, 15, 17. There we are told that those who are in must believe in the manner that children believe. So it's not enough that you believe. You have to believe in a manner that resembles how a child believes if you want to get in the kingdom of God. Well, that begs the question, how does believing like a child bring forgiveness of sin? Verses 18 through 30. The passage right before the one that's in our scopes today. There we are told of a well-adjusted, he's a well-off, rule-follower, who Jesus said is out. He said the only way he could be in is if he gives up everything. He went even further to say there's a better chance of a camel to get his two-hump rump, that's the southern way of translating that statement, through the eye of a needle than it is for this man to be in the kingdom of God. There's no chance this man is giving up everything. So then we're left with the question, how can anyone get in if you have to get up, give up everything? Carry those questions into this pat, the passages this morning, and I think we'll find help. So the first thing I want us to see is eyes set on sacrifice, beginning in verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So the twelve refers to the twelve disciples, the ones who have been following him. He turns to them and tells them, We're going to Jerusalem. Folks, there's almost nothing that would have been more surprising for Jesus to say to them at this moment, that we're going to Jerusalem. Let me help you see this. If you consider the last few weeks in the lives of disciples, you'll understand why this is surprising. So and I gave you a, a map there to kind of see it. I think it helps to see it that way. So in chapter 17 of Luke, we're looking at Jesus's teaching. That's where he teaches on forgiveness and faith and, and sin. All of that occurred uh, in, in the Perea area. I marked his location A on your map there. So this is the area where Jesus is baptized. Um, uh, this is where Jesus was when he got news that Lazarus, his friend, was sick and then later got news that he was dead. That's recorded in John 11. So Jesus then travels from Perea over to Bethany. That's marked as B. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, seriously, in terms of understanding the Gospels, you can't overemphasize what this does in Jesus's ministry. It, it, 
his fame explodes at this point. I mean, everybody is talking. And with that came unbelievable hatred from the religious elite. They were so upset. You can see this in John 12. They immediately begin to plot not only how to kill Jesus, but they begin plotting to try to kill Lazarus, to try to put all this to rest. How sick. So given that, Jesus began to make distance between himself and Jerusalem, and that's why um, uh, he, he goes uh, north and he goes up to that area of Samaria. I've marked that on your map as C. So he, that's where he's moving up, and that's where he heals the ten lepers. He teaches on the coming kingdom, and he gives us that parable of the Pharisee and tax collector, we think, probably while he's up in Samaria. Then he moves down south. That would have troubled the disciples a little bit, but he, he, he was going towards the Perea area. And, and that's actually where the setting of our text from last week that uh, Mark led us through on the rich young ruler, he teaches about that there. And the first teaching that where we are right now, that's where he is right now while he's talking. He's in that area there. And then finally, he's going to move in the second passage we look at, he's going to move into Jericho as he's on his way to Jerusalem. So to get from Perea, you would go up into Jericho and then down uh, into Jerusalem. In fact, many folks think, given how close Jericho is to where Jesus was baptized, that this might actually be the wilderness area where he was tempted. So aside from giving you a geography layout there, I hope you see why the disciples were surprised to see Jesus heading into the eye of the fiercest of storms. Jesus had told them of his coming sufferings before he'd done it twice in, in, in Luke 9. But all of that was before the raising of Lazarus. It's one thing to talk about tough times during peacetime. It's another thing to speak of it in the height of war. Now, we skipped over a very important word in that first sentence, and it's the first word of the sentence. Jesus tells the disciples to see, or some, some translations, to behold. He's telling them to, to look. He's telling them to understand. Now, that is dripping with irony, because the end of this passage together, the one thing they're asked to do, is the one thing they emphatically do not do, see or understand. Next, Jesus tells them there in that same verse, everything that is written about the Son of Man will be accomplished by the prophets. Sorry, everything that, I could not have messed that up worse. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So the term son of man, this is the term Jesus used to describe himself. Now, instead of giving you a proof of that right now, I put in the back of your handout uh, a page, just Luke alone, all the times Jesus calls himself the son of man. This is how Jesus talks about himself. It's about a dozen times. So Jesus, when he says son of man, he's talking about himself. So read that again. Everything that's written about me by the prophets will be accomplished. So the trip to Jerusalem will accomplish all the things written by the prophets about Jesus. And the prophets are really here the Old Testament. 
So the dangerous trip to Jerusalem is made to accomplish the things written about Jesus all across the Old Testament. Well, quite frankly, there's a lot written about Jesus across the Old Testament. It's full of it. But Jesus focuses our attention on which things he has in mind in, in the very subsequent verses. Look at verse 32. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So Jesus says the trip to Jerusalem will fulfill the places in the Old Testament where it is prophesied that a promised one will fill agony, immense suffering, and death. Where are these places? Well, as you consider the story of the Old Testament, the pictures of Jesus as the suffering sacrifice, they're just pervasive throughout. We looked at some of these most prominent examples in our responsive reading this morning. We looked at uh, the, the, the picture of Abraham almost sacrificing his son Isaac only to have a substitute found to stand in his place. He is the ram, it says, caught in the thickets. Jesus is the ram caught in the thickets. We considered Exodus 12. This is 500 years roughly later. As, as the people of God were saved by what? A substitutionary offering of a perfect lamb. Jesus, he's the offering of a perfect lamb. Moving 500 years forward, we saw how David foretold of the immense suffering of a Messiah. Another 300 years after David, we look and we see uh, uh, a, a suffering servant described by Isaiah who suffers how? At the hands of God himself in order to bring satisfaction to God for the people of God. And then we concluded there, going forward yet another few hundred years, with Zechariah, who foretells of a pierced one, who deeply suffers so much that those who see him weep bitterly. So they are going to Jerusalem so that Jesus might suffer these sufferings. And in so doing, he will become a major help to the people of God. Like the houses of Israel saved by the blood painted on the doorpost, Jesus' suffering will bring protection from the wrath of God. Isaiah says his sufferings will make many to be accounted righteous. He says in his sufferings, Jesus own took on himself the sins for those of whom he suffered. Zechariah tells us, that Jesus, oh, this language is the last thing we read together. It's so beautiful to read it together. He opened up a fountain to cleanse us of all of our sin and uncleanliness. Brothers and sisters, friends, this is how we can be forgiven. We can be forgiven because Jesus suffered at the hands of angry men. We can be forgiven because Jesus was treated as the unclean sinners that we are. If your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, you aren't getting into heaven on your own. None of our righteousness 
is such. We all need to be forgiven. The suffering of Jesus in Jerusalem, that's how we can have our sins forgiven. I like the way Spurgeon says it better. That's how we get our sins forgiven. There's nothing active about it on our side at all. So how can the tax collector be in and the Pharisee out? Well, the Pharisee's out because he doesn't even consider his need for forgiveness, nor does he believe in the sufferings of Jesus anyway. The tax collector is in because he believes he needs forgiveness. And he calls out to God to bring forgiveness. He trusts in the provision of God and God alone. He trusts in something outside of himself. He trusts in God. And this connects to the children. What is it about the children's belief that, that connects to saving faith? Well, Brother Mark and and, and Pastor Charlie, they did such a good job of showing us this. It's their complete dependence on someone else. These babies represent the most helpless state of human condition. A baby is totally, totally independent of another person. In the same manner, those who have faith in Jesus are totally dependent on another person. Totally dependent on the sufferings of Jesus. But we don't just need a sacrifice to pay for our sins. We need one who can become the righteousness we lack. Think about that. If I, if I was playing tennis against Rafael Nadal, I'm horrible at tennis. Horrible is, just to put it mild, I'm terrible. Okay, just keep that in mind. Rafael Nadal, best tennis player in the world. So let's say I'm playing tennis against him. I'm down two sets to none. Love. And someone came and reset the score zero to zero. Oh, well, now that would be great. But, I mean, if that's all they did, I'm still in a really bad spot. <laughs> I need someone to come and take over in my stead. I need someone who is much better than I. I actually need someone who is much better than Nadal. Jesus doesn't just say he's going to Jerusalem to suffer. That would put us back zero, zero, love, love. Instead, he says he's going to suffer, and on the third day, he's going to rise from the dead. Not only will he reset the score, he will stand in our place. He will take the racket. So how does the rich man ever get into the kingdom of God? He'll never get there with a few tips from a pro. That's what he was looking for. Instead, he's got to put down the racket and fully rely on someone else to play the game. But notice that Jesus is doing the exact same thing this is so ironic, so neat. He's doing the exact same thing he just called the rich young ruler to do. Jesus is the richest young ruler in the entire cosmos. And he did what? He did exactly what he told the rich young ruler to do. He gave up how much? Everything. And he headed to the 
cross of the deepest poverty and suffering and shame. So how might the rich man, rich young ruler get salvation? Not by adding anything to his resume, but turning and putting full trust and allegiance in the only one who can save him. How can we give up everything in order to be forgiven? We have to turn to the one who has already given up everything and suffered immensely in order that we might be forgiven, that he will stand in our place. Next, let's look at eyes closed to a suffering Savior. So Jesus says all this, we're headed to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And I just picture this moment where he says all this and they're just standing looking. Like this is one time Peter's probably so dumbfounded, he can't even open his mouth. And you know that that takes some work, right? Now look at the response of the disciples. But they, this is a trip. But they understood none of these things. This was some, this saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. <laughs> what a letdown. Jesus is explaining how he's about ready to accomplish the divine plan of God and offer salvation <laughs> for all the children of God. You would expect a little bit of clapping, some cheering, maybe, I don't know, dancing, shouting, hugging, anything except for what we get. And it would be bad enough if the passage ended with, and the disciples didn't seem to fully get it. That would be a massive letdown. But no, 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 no. We get a three-way repeat of this. They understood none of these things. Ouch. They, this saying was hidden from them. Ooh. They did not grasp what he said. You think the text wants us to get the fact they didn't see it at all? I think so. And remember, how did the passage begin? What does Jesus ask him to do at the very beginning? See, look, understand. And now it ends with the disciples, not only not seeing, but apparently not even being able to see. So here we have the eyes of Jesus dead set on Jerusalem, on the cross and on his role as the atoning sacrifice for the children of God. And meanwhile, this is not something the disciples can even see. One day they will see. We'll get to, get to that in Luke 24, as Jesus will open their eyes. And how will they see? It will be Jesus opening their blinded eyes. Cue the next passage. If the disciples can't see these things, how can any of us see? Beautiful, Luke. Beautiful. Next passage, verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. So the last passage begins with Jesus telling the disciples to see and ends with them unable to see. There's an implied question, how can anybody see? 
And here are the disciples walking into Jericho with Jesus. And what do they meet? But none other than a blind man. Jesus's first miracle occurred a few years ago at this point, way up north in the town of Cana. That was the miracle, the water into wine. And it's no accident that the final miracle will be this miracle, and it will be the healing of a blind man. Verse 36, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is stopping by. As we said earlier, Jesus's fame had exploded. And, and so when he moves from a town, from one town to the other, it's a huge event. Everybody's coming. So this blind beggar who Mark later tells us is uh, Bartimaeus, he inquires about all the commotion. He hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming. He's heard the stories of this man. Verse 38, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. And those who were in the front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So as Jesus comes closer, this man begins to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Each time in the Gospels that the term Son of David is used outside of the genealogies is another way of saying Messiah. I gave you at the end of your handout, there's a list of some examples that you can see of this. But basically the, the terms are synonymous. The man is crying out with a loud voice, Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on me. Well, no wonder the people were telling him to be quiet. He could get himself killed for such provocative language, especially that close to Jerusalem. But Luke makes sure we catch a dichotomy. It's so plain. The crowd tells the blind man, the man who can't see, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. The next thing, the blind man calls out, Jesus, son of David, or Jesus, the promised one. What irony. The folks who can't see label him as Jesus, the one who's from Nazareth. And the man who cannot see apparently is the only man who can see because he calls him not Jesus solely of Nazareth, but Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 40. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? This is unbelievable mercy. Jesus owes no one, nobody, the privilege of stopping. And the Bible is clear that Jesus will stop for beggars and sinners. Praise God for his mercy. Verse 41 is the key of so much of what's going on in chapter 18. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? The Pharisee didn't want Jesus or anyone else to do anything for him. The rich young ruler just wanted, you know, more of a coach. That's all. You can almost hear him saying, let me do it. Let me do it. But the tax collector, he was done with his own doing. 
He was ready for someone to do it for him. The little children brought to Jesus were examples of those who relied on some others always doing for them. And now this blind beggar gets the question. What do you want me to do for you? He doesn't hesitate, not in the slightest. The end of 41, he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. I like how uh, the, the uh, Christian Standard Bible puts this. It says, Lord, let me see. Oh. Calls Jesus Lord. He's demonstrating that he already considers Jesus the one that he follows. And he just asks him, I'd like to see. And Jesus said, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So Jesus follows the opposite order of what he did with the healing of the paralytic. You can see that in Luke 5. But recall that instance. It's so, so helpful. Remember the, the folks lift their friend down and he hits there down on the bottom. And, and Jesus looks at him and he says, remember the order here? He says, your sins are forgiven. And the religious, the scribes and Pharisees, they go nuts. They're just so upset. Who but God alone can forgive sins? So, so then Jesus turns to the man. So beautiful. And he says, okay, get up and walk. And, and Jesus explains to them that he started with the former, that is the forgiveness of sins, that which they could not see, so that when they saw his power to accomplish the thing that they could see, a paralytic who now walks, they might know that he had power over both. Here Jesus begins with the issue of sight, and then he moves to forgiveness of sin. The ESV translates the end of 42 as, your faith has made you well. And, and that's a common word in the Greek sozo that is often, is almost always talking about salvation. I think the Christian Standard Bible does, I gave you a list of different translations in case you're interested to see it, but I think the Christian Standard Bible does this much better. It says, your faith has saved you. So given the man's declaration of Jesus as Messiah multiple times, about to the point that he got himself killed, this isn't just a healing. This is a conversion. In fact, this man and the one in the next passage will be the last conversions prior to the cross, where there'll be a Roman centurion and a man hanging on the cross also converted. The man immediately follows Jesus. He's given evidence of his faith. All the people begin to give praise to God. It's funny. You remember how in the earlier days Jesus would heal somebody? What's the first thing you would tell them to do? Hey, hey, don't say anything to anybody. Let's just keep this quiet. Why? Because he didn't want to become the political uproar. Well, that cat's out of the bag. So he doesn't even try. He doesn't even say anything. <laughs> Let it be. He knows he's already headed to the cross at this point. So here in the account of this blind beggar, we get more answers to our higher questions. How is it that the disciples will ever be able to see? How is it that you or I will ever be able to see? We will be able to see in the same manner that Bartimaeus was able to see when Jesus gives us sight.
is the final miracle of our Lord in all of his ministry is to heal a blind man and give him sight. And it's the miracle that he has been repeating since he was raised from the dead, beginning with the women, beginning in Luke chapter 24, and explains it to the knuckleheads. And what he's done to every single heart who's trusted in him since then, he's opened the eyes of, or he's opened blinded eyes. Friend, with whom in these stories do you identify today? Do you find yourself like the Pharisees in which you believe, I've already got this all together. I don't really need any help. Or you more like the rich young ruler where you recognize you could use some tips, pointers, maybe a bit more direction. That's never going to work. Or do you find yourself like the tax collector, utterly undone, unable to raise your head, helpless as an infant who is fully dependent on another, desperate as a blind man left to beg for all of his needs. When God opens the eyes of his children, we see two things. One, how helpless we are. And two, how mighty Jesus is to save. So what is the answer to all the how questions? It's kind of an interesting thing. All you got to do is unscramble the letters for how. The answer to every how question is a who. How are your sins forgiven? And who else but Jesus? How does believing like a child justify one before God? Because they fully depend on who else but Jesus. How can someone give up everything in order to be brought in? Who else could do such a thing but Jesus? Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, came to faith on a Sunday morning we Baptists don't like to admit this. On a Sunday morning while visiting a Methodist church, he was forced there. This is the part we always want to add in because of a snowstorm that prevented him from getting where he was going. I want you to hear Spurgeon describe it. You're going to know why he's a friend of preachers. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm. One Sunday morning, while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much. My head ached. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man. Maybe he was a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort. He went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it's good that preachers should be instructed. But this man was not. Not even close. He was obligated to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me and you will be saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There I was, I thought. There it was, I thought, 
a glimpse of hope for me in this text. And then the good man followed up his text in saying, look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone about the length and managed to spend out 10 minutes or so, he was definitely at the end of his rope. Then he looked at me sitting there, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me, I was a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all of my heart. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I'd not been accustomed to have remarks made for me from the pulpit about my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, you man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the kindness of opening blinded eyes. If any of us have seen you rightly, it is simply because you have shown us in Christ. Thank you for that. Father, I pray there's anyone here who has not looked upon Jesus not as just an interesting person, not as a coach, but looked upon Jesus as the only one who could help, ready to hand over the racket. Father, I pray you allow them to look on Jesus today, look at him and live. We pray for that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus who gave it all up, everything he had, he gave it up. He's now our risen king. And thank you for your spirit who attends your word and grows your people. Amen.